The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. does not uh, jive with the official version. So they said that what we had to say was at variance with what the experts at the World Health Organization right. said about the virus and about the vaccines, particular, and therefore um, that uh, they were going to simply ban it, right? right? So they banned the entire program. Yes. We had about an hour-long program done a week ago yesterday, right? and. Uh, as you say, when an hour of it being posted, it was removed. And uh, basically, I guess we were notified somehow? Yeah, they sent us an email. Oh, they sent us an email, okay, telling us that we had contradicted the, uh, the powers that be at uh, the World Health Organization, um, and therefore we were not allowed to say these things. Right, right? yes. Uh, possibly, I guess the next step is we're not, not allowed to think these things, mm -hmm. right? Thought, please. Right. So, um, <clears throat> so, but you know, it's it's not surprising because it's uh, they've been doing this to a lot of people who say things that don't uh, go along with the collectivist, totalitarianist, uh, communist party narrative. Right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, um, again, we um, make the best of it, but we the the program is available. That's the important thing. We need to tell people where they can see the program, right? Um, I guess if this continues, uh, uh, eventually um, uh, YouTube and Google will uh, banish us into the netherworld, right? Mm. <laughs> so, in the, their netherworld, anyway. <clears throat> and so people will not be able to see what Catholics believe on, on YouTube platform, is that? Right. So in which case, where do they go? Uh, well, Father, everyone can go to, we recommend everyone actually, uh, even the way it is now, we recommend that everyone go to our website at wcbohio.com. Mm -hmm. And on there we will we will post the link from wherever we are streaming mm -hmm. from or wherever we, we post the recorded video. So we um, encourage everyone, even for our live streams each week, uh, as soon as we begin the stream, we will post that link immediately mm -hmm. on our website. It'll be the first video right there on the website. So mm -hmm. really just encourage everyone to, to totally um, just avoid YouTube altogether. They, they uh, should not try to possible. access it through YouTube, but they should try to access, access the program through uh, wcbohio.com. Correct. Correct. Yes, Father. And at that site, then we'll direct them to wherever they can see the video. We'll, we'll actually embed the video in the website, so they won't have to go to an external okay. website. They can. They can and the video of last week now is available. Is available. Yes, Father. Through our website. Yes, Father. WCBOhio. Yes. Okay. Yes, Father. Yep. And we direct people to it from there. Absolutely. Yes, Father. Okay. Okay. Yep. Good to know, Tom. Yep. Thank you. No problem. Thank um, you, Father. That way, even if. Um, we have uh, been determined to run afoul of the the official narrative, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, then um, by indulging in forbidden thought and, for, and forbidden speech. Um, um, who, who is it who's in charge of this Google YouTube thing? 
Google uh, Alphabet. Uh, oh, or, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, anyway, that people will still be able to follow what Catholics believe. Mm -hmm. I've been asked this, Father, um, and I wanted to, to pose this question to you. Do you plan to avoid any of these more sensitive topics that, that YouTube is? Uh, so no, we'll answer the questions it. that people send to us, and yeah. you know, they have a right to ask the question. And if they decide to ask us the question, will they decide to they have a right to an answer to the question, at least as well as we, I can, we can. Yeah. Uh, so no, I, I don't intend to let um, the uh, self-appointed censors of humanity uh, decide what we can say, what we can say, what we can think, and what we can't think. Right. Um, so that would be complete surrender yeah. uh, to totalitarianism, collectivism. It's not even so much collectivism, is it really? I mean, you've got somebody there who's making these decisions and appointing all these censors, right? I, I understand that a number of them, or not most of them, are actually communist Chinese operatives, which wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. So, um, so anyway, I mean, if, that's, if I were a Chinese communist, I'd be looking to get into positions like that where I could throttle any, any, any talk that was uh, not um, in accord with my message, right? Uh, so, um, you know, I, I find it very credible yeah. that they have uh, found their way there to uh, actually choke off any, any talk of uh, truth. <laughs> You know, it's because it is the truth, right. precisely because it is the truth. Right. Well, uh, Father, I guess we can move on to some viewer email, um, see how we go this week. Uh, we have several questions about uh, Elias, the, the prophet, uh, as mm. one of the two witnesses. We've, we've talked about him on, on recent programs and um, a, few, a few questions concerning him. But one in particular, Father, one, one of our viewers has uh, been very, very thoroughly researching this issue and He's, he's asked multiple questions, but uh, he, his <coughs> main question here, Father, is he asks uh, if we should be praying for the coming of Elias, if we should be begging God to send the great restorer, to send Elias to us now. Um, he says, you know, when, when we look and see all of the errors in the world today and, and all of the uh, trials and tribulations which we're going through, would it not be wise, Father, to pray to God and ask God to send Elias as the great restorer? No. Why not? Well, uh, you know, the, the Jews have all prayed for the coming of the Messiah, which is one thing, and that's, they were instructed to do that, obviously. But I don't know that we've ever been instructed by the Church, ever, to pray for the coming of the Antichrist. Um, actually, the, uh, the occultists do that. They want to draw, draw down the moon and all the other things. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard took part in the ceremony uh, to do just that with uh, Parsons, out uh, the, uh, the rocket scientist for NASA, um, out in California before he founded uh, Scientology, uh, trying to draw down the moon and essentially uh, bring into the world what we know as the Antichrist. Um, the whole thing was a bust, well, <laughs> but he went on to form uh, Scientology after that, so maybe he thought there was some evil that came out of it, <laughs> something to justify it. But in any case, um, with regard to um, the coming of the two witnesses, they are actually to be timed with regard to the coming of the Antichrist. 
And so praying for the coming of Elias is essentially praying for the coming of the Antichrist. We've never been instructed by the church, by any of her fathers or doctors or popes or theologians to pray for the coming of the Antichrist. Rather, we've been always asked to pray that that would not come during our time. St. Pius X uh, himself, in his first encyclical, openly stated that he, he dreaded becoming the Pope at that time. He was terrified because he feared that it, the times at hand were the times spoken of by St. Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 about the coming of the Antichrist. So it's not the kind of thing that we should relish, and it's not the kind of thing that we should, uh, that we should pray for. Um, um, I mean, one might say, well, let's get this over, let's accelerate things, let's bring them to their final conclusion. Um, but the fact is, there are things that still, the timetable is not yet complete, and things would have to deteriorate terribly rapidly, and we'd be praying for the... Uh, rapid uh, descent of the world into just absolute sin uh, in order to accelerate these things. Um, you know, there, there, it's, it's very clear here, the connection, the connection, the coming of Elias and the coming of the Antichrist, very clear. In chapter 11 of the book of the Apocalypse, uh, verse 3, uh, we read about the coming of the two witnesses. And uh, Father Kramer, in his book, The Book of Destiny, speaks very clearly of this on page 254. He says, uh, The one who speaks here is Christ, or his angel. St. John does not say who gave him the reed, but it must have been the one who is now speaking. What he will give the two witnesses is added by the word and with the succeeding clause, namely the authority to speak and act in his name for a thousand two hundred and sixty days. The time is given here in days to denote the unceasing activity of preaching and working miracles day by day. It corresponds to the public life of our Lord, that is to say, one thousand two hundred and sixty days. The witnesses shall preach penance and give the example of penance by their austerity and dress. He continues, the definite article designates the, and, the, and he capitalizes T-H-E, two witnesses, as two definite personages who can easily be known from the books of the Old and New Testaments. The prophecy seems clearly to refer to Malachias, Chapter 4, verse 5, where he says, quote, Behold, I will send you Elias, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. End quote. Elias was taken up in a fiery chariot alive and is preserved in a secret place, a paradise, for the, quote, great day of Almighty God. End quote. Henoch was also transported alive, as says St. Paul in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, Quote, Henoch was translated that he should not see death, end quote. His translation, similar to that of Elias, would logically presage for him a share in the work of Elias. This is the opinion of most interpreters. 
So um, one might continue reading, but essentially, I, I think Father uh, Kramer sums up pretty well what sacred tradition has to give us with regard to the identity of these. But again, nowhere do we find anyone here uh, exhortations to pray for the coming of Elias any more than we are to pray for the coming of the Antichrist. Right? Quite the contrary. That will happen only after a great revolt. And uh, we are supposed to be uh, actually uh, each, each age of mankind, each, each period, each generation is supposed to be for, trying to prevent the revolt against God and work against it, not to sort of drive it to its consummation. Besides, uh, you know, if you look at the liturgy, and I think perhaps this same uh, writer did say, go to the, the Mass of St. Elias in the Carmelite liturgy. Right. You know, if you, if you go to the orations of that, of that Mass, you go to the Collect, you go to the Secret, you go to the Post-Communion, nowhere is there an, any invocation uh, to, you know, oh, God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, send Elias, send Elias, send Elias. There's no admonition in that anywhere that we are to pray for the coming of Elias. There's no invocation uh, to God to send him, and there's no invocation of Elias to come in that liturgy. So I, I don't know where this thought is coming from, really, uh, except to think that maybe the, the individual who's writing about this has come up with the idea of himself. Um, but I just don't see it, the foundation of that anywhere in any of the writings of the church fathers or spiritual writers or anything uh, to, to call Elias down from heaven. But, Father, what are we praying for when we pray? Or, well, from paradise, yeah. <laughs> where he's being held. Yeah. Anyway. When we pray for the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, what is that? Because this viewer says that, you know, that the triumph of the Immaculate Heart could very well be after uh, the, the two witnesses and Elias, after they... Well, again, when, when we're praying the for the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, we might put that in the same category with the praying for the coming of, of, the, of the Savior, of the Messiah. Okay, that's a very different thing than praying for Elias to come to confront the Antichrist because his mission is so directly and uh, so directly related to the to the, the, the actual triumph of the Antichrist over the whole world, however temporary it may be. Uh, so um, when we talk about the triumph, the coming of the Messiah into the world and the redemption being done. You talk about the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, actually our Lord triumphing th through her Immaculate Heart. We're praying for things that are unreservedly good things, you know, uh, desirable in every way. But uh, if the idea is to pray for the coming of Elias to, uh, to kind of consummate the evil in the world, uh, which is necessarily going to be part of that, his coming, right? Uh, to provoke his coming, as it were, uh, and and then this great showdown with the Antichrist. Uh, these are th these are matters that, as I as I understand it, the Church Fathers and spiritual writers have said we should actually pray that that they not come in our time. After all, we do pray, lead us not into temptation, right? Um, so um, I, I I don't 
think this is correct. I don't think it's right myself. Okay. Will God send Elias and the two witnesses without our prayers? Will, will he send them simply in his he, own good yes. time? Yes, well, he will send them, um, of course, he will, you know. He will send them in due time. And when is that due time? Well, uh, St. Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, there will be a great revolt, an apostasia, an apostasy, and there will be great evils in the world, uh, terrible evils in the world. The book of the Apocalypse details quite a bit of how evil and how depraved the entire world will get. So that it will, uh, you know, open the, 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 the door for the Antichrist to come in. And the vast majority of mankind, all, all but the elect, will uh, actually adore the Antichrist. So that's how perverted the world will be. Um, we're not there yet, you know, to pray that we get there soon uh, is, um, well, I, I would like, I would ask the gentleman uh, who is uh, doing this, this research and recommending this to produce some, uh, some voice from Catholic tradition saying that we should be praying for the coming of the Antichrist to have the showdown with the... We should be praying for the coming of Elias to have the showdown with the Antichrist, uh, to put an end to world history and get it over with and uh, accelerate the whole process. <coughs> um, I don't know of any. So if this gentleman can produce one voice other than his own, you know, calling for this, well, I, I would find that of, of great interest. Okay. Well, Father, we have a couple other questions concerning Elias. Um, two similar ones here. Um, this one viewer, he, he asked, Father, if it really is correct to say that uh, Elias is not in the beatific vision because he references the Roman martyrology for July 20th and it lists on Mount Carmel the holy prophet Elias. So does not the fact that, that Elias is listed in the Roman martyrology, would that not indicate that he is actually in heaven in the beatific vision? <clears throat> well, ordinarily, I mean, you have listed in the martyrology, the Roman martyrology, those who are saints in heaven, okay? Um, so I think the, the, the writer there is, is, might not be the same writer, I don't know. No, that's um, You know, it has something to say about that. But nonetheless, again, uh, Catholic tradition has it that he did not die and that, um, that he is subject to death, though, because he was conceived with, origi with original sin on his soul. The only way one could be exempt from death is if he's, um, you know, free of original sin. Uh, Our Lady herself chose to die, right? As tradition has it, to be like with and like her son in all things. Uh, so she would not exempt herself of anything that her son himself had to undergo. But in this case, there's no question, there's no tradition whatsoever that Elias the prophet was conceived without original sin. Uh, there's no suggestion of it anywhere in sacred tradition that I know of, certainly not in sacred scripture. And uh, therefore, he was subject to death, right? And uh, that is divine revelation. So um, we, uh, we'd have to say that uh, that death would take place uh, according to the voices of Catholic tradition and the commentators on the book of the Apocalypse uh, when that Elias as a witness returns to earth sent by God from paradise to confront the Antichrist. <laughs>
And um, then he will undergo death, and then he will be risen, uh, he will be raised, and will ascend, right? And uh, the two of the witnesses, the two witnesses, notice uh, in Jewish, uh, in Jew, according to Jewish law, Jewish requirements, two witnesses, in, in, in two witnesses every word shall stand, right? This is why the testimony of the two elders who were testifying against Susanna in the Old Testament uh, carried such weight that she would be condemned to death on the basis of their testimony until Daniel, young Daniel, uh, showed that they were lying, right? And they were put to death because of their treachery and then uh, betrayal of, of well, their, their roles, their office, really. Um, but it's not an accident that God is sending two witnesses, and two witnesses who did not actually undergo death. Where are they? Well, you know, tradition has it they're in paradise. Remember, that, that would mean that they're somewhere here on earth. The Garden of Eden, according to tradition, exists. We are barred from it by an angel with a flaming sword. There are, if we take the words quite literally, uh, there, some say, actually uh, being kept alive by eating the, from the tree of life, the fruit of the tree of life, right? Uh, there, there's no reason to consider these things to be merely allegorical, right? And uh, that their lives are preserved, and they are being kept by God precisely for the moment to confront the Antichrist. And they are two witnesses whose testimony will stand. And when they rise, and when they are raised into the heavens, um, that will be their ultimate testimony, and the f spell the final abject defeat of the Antichrist. And all of his power will crumble from that moment. Right? So, um, any, anyway, um, but the fact is, it's very clear that from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that Elias is going to come before this great day of confrontation with evil in the world, this great day of the vindication of God and Christ, Christ's triumph over the Antichrist, that will be the, the occasion when God sends Elias and he into the world. Um, I heard somebody say recently, or write, that they're not just going to drop out of heaven. Well, that's the point. They're not. Right? Um, but they are going to come from where they are being kept by God, even in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll reveal themselves for who they are. And um, they'll back up that announcement of who they are, their identities, by tremendous powerful works, tremendously powerful works, which will be undeniable to any, innocent, to any honest person. Father, another email, uh, rather interesting. This viewer offers the disclaimer that this is just a, a personal idea, but he wanted to get your, your take on this. He, um, he says that, that uh, throughout Elias' life, every decision and action that he took was in the utter service of the God of Israel. He was a true living sacrifice. He truly had died to himself completely during his life on earth. Uh, he was a complete and utter holocaust, and uh, his, his entire life was a holocaust. So he says, therefore, the idea that Elias needs to die as men are appointed once to death is a false one, as his entire life was a type of death. What do you think of that, Father? 
I think it's bordering on heresy. Really? (laughs) There's one who is immaculately conceived, that is our Blessed Mother. And uh, our Lord, our Lord himself, of course, is human, so uh, our Lord is immaculately conceived too, clearly, but we usually refer to Our Lady's immaculate conception as something unique to her because it was a privilege. In Our Lord it was not a privilege, (laughs) but in her it was a privilege. And uh, the, the Church allows for no other immaculate conception uh, for anyone born of, born of woman than that of our Blessed Mother and that of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, our Lord by right because of his divine person and our Blessed Mother by privilege because she is the mother of the divine person, the Theotokos, the mother of God, made man. So there is no other uh, personage not Elias or Henoch or anyone else, Moses or Abraham or anyone who is immaculately conceived uh, in church teaching. And I think, uh, actually, uh, I cannot pronounce heresy, but I do believe that that would be pronounced heretical by the traditional voice of the Catholic Church. Okay. Uh, the fact is that, you know, according to sacred tradition, they, and Malachi, uh, as I say, it's, it's in divine revelation, the prophet Malachi, that Elias will return to earth. And uh, that is interpreted as that he's one of the two witnesses, and then he will die, that he will be subject to death. So uh, I don't see the point being really open to, the, to uh, controversy. Okay. All right. Let's see how. All right. Then uh, a couple other topics, Father, perhaps a little bit later. But um, one of our viewers wrote in and said that Dietrich von Hildebrand is very popular in some conservative uh, circles, and he says this worries me. Should his writings be avoided? Dietrich von Hildebrand. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm no, no expert, uh, certainly, on the writings of the thought of uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand. I did meet him briefly when I was quite young, still a seminarian. I must say, I mean, he was an impressive individual, and a very learned individual. Um, in fact, uh, the, uh, there's a report that Pope Pius XII even referred to him as uh, uh, 20th century doctor of the church right. you know, in his writings. Yeah. And he, uh, he's a convert. He was raised in an irreligious family, actually born in Florence, raised in Florence. And in 1914 he converted. Uh, it concerns me a little bit that he fell under the influence of Max Scheler. Um, Shaler was not a Thomist in philosophy, by any means. And, and uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand also did his, uh, I think he did his doctoral thesis under Husserl, Husserl the German. And he was certainly not a Thomist. I mean, these are men who were basically phenomenalists. And uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand himself was a phenomenalist, a phenomenologist. But rather than going in for the transcendental idealistic uh, phenomenology of, of Husserl, uh, he actually, in a sense, turned against it and went in for what he called realistic or realist phenomenology. And realist phenomenology, it, it seems almost like an oxymoron. You know, I mean, in terms of Thomistic philosophy and theology, realist phenomenology is kind of an oxymoron. You know, the whole idea of uh, phenomenology as such as it was divine, I mean, you, you trace the history of it, really. 
It goes back before Hegel. I think Hegel was the one who kind of gave it the stamp of idealistic or idealist phenomenology, uh, where basically all that exists is the idea, not the thing. The, the thing does not exist. You can't get to the Ding an sich. You can't get to the thing in itself. All that gets into the mind is just sort of some phenomenon which you don't really know whether it corresponds to what's out there, it, but it's in your mind, right? So it's an idea in your mind, and that's basically all the reality it has, as far as we know. Um, it was kind of, I think, a, a kind of an extreme but pathetic uh, attempt uh, to, um, I don't know, kind of harken back to Plato, and the idea that Every, this is the shadow world, and everything in the world is nothing but a reflection of something that exists in some heavenly world, celestial world, where everything ha is real, where blue is a thing. Blue, blueness is a thing unto itself. Redness is a thing. Brightness is a thing. Hardness is a separate thing unto itself. You know? All of these things are kind of embodied there. But here, everything is just kind of a, in a a shadow of what it is there and we're just kind of going through this shadow land uh, that making impressions on our minds. So I mean all, all of the, these ideas were attempts to try to explain how we think. As human beings, how do we think? And I don't want to again get too far afield here because you know it's, a, it's a thousands of years of history of thought about how we think going on here. But I mean, you know, you think of a refrigerator. You, you picture a refrigerator in your mind. Um, you, you, your, your stomach rumbles and you think, oh, I'm hungry. Let me go to the refrigerator, okay? And so suddenly this idea of refrigerator pops up in your mind, right? Is there a refrigerator actually in your head? Does, does uh, a, a door open in your, in your head and there's a refrigerator behind it? to enable you to think of a refrigerator? Is there actually a refrigerator in your head, in your, in your mind, in your brain, whatever, however they want to put it? Well, actually, no, fortunately. Um, but how is it there, and how does it correspond to a real refrigerator? Or is there any correspondence? Is it purely imaginary? I mean, the one who really introduced these ideas, the nominalists back in the 1200s, they... 1300s, 1400s, I guess, really, um, they, they were basically anti-Thomas because all of Christian philosophy, uh, the scholastic philosophy, begins with the concept of reality, that things are real, and that our minds were created by God for reality, to correspond to reality. And truth is for us what corresponds to reality. And the lie is locutio contra mentem, a, a speech against the mind, basically. Right? You deceive by speaking against what you know is the truth. And uh, so the whole idea of Christian philosophy is that our, our minds are made by God, our souls are made for truth. Um, and uh, nominalism, phenomenalism, basically reject that whole idea. Um, all of these modern philosophies that want to tr 
tear the human mind away from anything having anything resembling objective truth began by with Descartes, Rene Descartes. They're all called, it's the whole Cartesian philosophical, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, you can't even call it a river. You can't, it's just broken up in so many branches, so many varieties of Cartesian thought, so many tweaks of this and tweaks of that. It's just become a veritable torrent of Cartesian thought. All of it comes down to the fact that that there's there's really no correspondence between our thoughts and the concepts in our minds and anything real outside of us. And so you finally you wind up with existentialism, where everybody creates his own reality around himself. Everybody has his own experience. Experience is the thing. Everybody, everybody has his own experience, right? Um, and his experience for him is real. It's the only reality he knows. And everybody has unique experience. So your experience and my experience are not exactly the same, which means our reality is not the same. Okay? And uh, can't be the same reality. So truth, what you consider true, what I consider true, is unique to us, each one of us. We're like the gods of our own little world, of our own creation, based upon our own experience. We've created our own little worlds around ourselves. And in that world also we decide what is good or bad. What is true or false is whatever corresponds to our personal experience. And what is good or bad is what corresponds to our own personal interests. If, it's, if it corresponds to our personal interests, it's good. If it corresponds to something that is painful or uncomfortable or unprofitable to us, it's bad. Each one of us makes that up for himself. The essential idea of existentialism comes down to that. It's madness. It's craziness. I mean, you know, we talk about somebody being out of touch with reality. Well, this is the very essence of, of insanity, right? Being out of touch with reality. Being, well, go to the insane asylums and you see people who have their own reality. Everybody has their own reality. And um, they're creating a world uh, of insane people. You know, basically, people are just out of their minds. <laughs> uh, or the trouble is maybe they're totally locked up in their minds. Quite, quite contrary, right? In any case, does Dietrich von Hildebrand go in for that? No, he says he's a phenomenalist and he's a personalist, okay? And therefore, his philosophy was very, very well thought of by John Paul II, who was a phenomenalist personalist. Very well thought of by Benedict XVI, or uh, Ratzinger. Phenomenalist personalist. Maybe the bond between Ratzinger and uh, John Paul II was built upon that uh, kinship and philosophical outlook. <coughs> but um, the, the, the strange thing is, they seem to be of the a realist phenomenalist school <coughs> of uh, Dietrich von Hildebrandt. And uh, this, is, this is peculiar to me. And maybe if I, if I read more of Dietrich von Hildebrandt's works, I would get an answer to these questions. But the more I read about them, the more questions come up. I mean, there's even talk about experiencing the essences of things. And this is troublesome because you might say, well, as a, let's say if I interpret this in a Thomistic way, 
Well, in a sense, I'm saying there are essences of things, things are real, and yes, I can reach them. Somehow my concept corresponds to the actual essence of a thing outside of me. There's an objective reality. But again, you know, the modernist interprets everything in terms of experience. The phenomenalist ex interprets everything in terms of experience. So when we talk about experiencing the essence of the reality of a thing, you know, immediately you get into this kind of, um, again, kind of a, what should I say, kind of a, a very blurry concept of the connection between the human mind and the reality. I experience it, because that often has to do with how I feel about it. Finally, when you get to modernism, modernism says faith itself is an experience. You're experiencing something divine beyond you. And that experience is, above all, an emotional experience. Uh, think of the altar call. You have an emotional experience, right? And that's faith. So all of this seems to be kind of in the direction of it. And I can see why John Paul II and Benedict XVI in their earlier days, would go, would actually feel a kinship there. Um, they are modernists, but, um, um, you know, one might have a hard time, ex ex uh, shall we say, getting their minds around the idea that they are modernists, but they are. They're, they're, they're modernists in their fundamental idea of what faith is. John Paul II was continually referring to the faith experience, the faith experience, the faith experience, over and over again in his documents. Um, that's a fundamental principle of modernism. Not divine revelation, enlightening the mind, and giving it the grace of faith to accept the truth revealed, but people experience the divine in the world, you know. And uh, this is the fundamental basis for ecumenism, because it's not only Catholics who experience the divine, it's Muslims and Jews and Zoroastrians and so on. They all experience the divine, and their experiences are all true. Uh, you can't argue with somebody's experience and the emotional impact it has on them. You can't argue with that. It's not up for discussion. So, uh, anyway... You can only hope to be enlightened, enlightened by somebody else's experience that you haven't had, that you can share with them. Ecumenism, right? So, in any case, uh, you know, it seems that I'm kind of uh, wandering a bit over here, but we're talking about a big subject, a very big subject. And uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand uh, was not a modernist. Um, because regardless of what he said in, in philosophy, um, I think in terms of faith and theology, he really believed the doctrines of the faith and believed in divine revelation as not just some kind of an experience. And that is why he was extremely critical of Vatican II, extremely critical of the new Mass, and did everything he could to get people to, to attend only the traditional Mass. And he was one of the founders of the uh, United States uh, chapter of Una Voce. He was also, I think, uh, 
uh, founder of other, you know, very traditional organizations, Catholic organizations. He wrote books uh, dec decrying the corruption that had set in after Vatican II, what had become of the Church. I don't know that he ever attacked Vatican II. He was always trying to convince people that they had to read the documents of Vatican II in light of Catholic tradition. Well, that's what Archbishop Lefebvre was saying. It's only in our own day now that Archbishop Bigano is saying that's impossible, really. You know, Vatican II was intrinsically a revolution, and the documents cannot really be legitimately interpreted in the light of Catholic tradition. Oddly enough, probably the strongest voice backing up Archbishop Vigano is none other than Ratzinger. Yes, of Ratzinger himself, Cardinal Ratzinger, Bishop Ratzinger, you know, what I, I think he was a cardinal at that point, said that Vatican II was the French Revolution in the Church. So if we refer to Vatican II as a revolution, and a godless revolution, which the French Revolution was, then we can actually uh, attribute that to no less than Benedict XVI, who said those words exactly, quote-unquote, as cardinals. He said it's the anti-syllabus uh, of St. Pius X. So those are pretty strong words there, and uh, they say a lot. So I think it's just Archbishop uh, Vigano who's actually drawing out the full meaning of those words now in our own day. Uh, so, again, I, I have a, a lot of respect for Dietrich von Hildebrand and, um, again, his resistance to the modernist, the modernist changes. I think his philosophy might have muddied the waters a bit for him, but I think, uh, and, and he wasn't a theologian, he never claimed to be a theologian, but I, in no way, could, and I saw no reason in any way to uh, doubt his faith as being a Catholic to the core. I think he was a, a, a true Catholic gentleman. Why did, why did Pope Pius XII have such high praise for him? Was it because of his faith? Pope Pius XII probably wasn't uh, really a died-in-the-world Thomist either. Uh, his, his own formation, um, I don't know. I, I, I really couldn't tell you for sure. Yeah. I just... Um, I would guess this, okay, I would guess that Pope Pius XII saw that he was writing something that was kind of a philosophy that kind of uh, appealed to the modern age and it was from a standpoint of faith. He probably saw the faith of the man and thought that, well, he's taking phenomenalism or phenomenology and he's trying to root it into an objective reality and talk about how Yes, the mind can know reality and can experience reality. And he, he might well have thought this was a, a good thing. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the modernists would uh, emphasize the part that um, that's an experience we each have, <laughs> right? And. Um, uh, that, that the person has, and they can unfortunately um, twist that to serve the modernist understanding of faith as a faith experience lending itself to ecumenical dialogue. Okay. 
right, well, Father, if you're up for it, I th just one more uh, one more question that I wanted to get to. This one might be, be a bit quicker, but uh, one of our viewers says he's been reading a bit about um, Freemasonry, and he, in his research, discovered that Mozart and Haydn, and, uh, as well as uh, some other classical composers, were, uh, in fact, Masons in, in their day. And so he, he wants to know, Father, would that... Uh, in any way affect our listening to their music? Should we not listen to their their uh, their pieces, their works of art, because of the fact that they were Masons? No, that wouldn't keep us from listening to their music. Yeah. Um, they um, no doubt had a classical education, and um, the music actually does correspond to the very essence of what music is. And it is very beautiful. It is, it is well, Haydn and um, Mozart and so on are more along, appeal more to the intellect because of the beauty of the melodies than the emotions, okay? We see the degradation of music as it begins to appeal more and more to the emotions and finally to the passions, right? Just to the gut passions. Um, that leads to finally just music, but that isn't music at all. It's the character, caricature of music, which is just uh, basically uh, fury and beating, beating on garbage can lids, you know, and calling it music. Literally. Uh, pardon me? Literally. Literally, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, no, they still had the essence of, of music. Um, you see, masonry, even in those days, believed in the intellectual. Unfortunately, though, they believed in the intellectual to the exclusion of faith. They believed that faith, being naturalists and rationalists as they were, they believed that faith is somehow an insult to the intellect, and the intellect was capable of knowing all truth, and what the intellect was not capable of knowing could not be true. And the intellect must reject it as... as uh, intellectually unknowable and therefore simply not true. And that in involved matters of faith, which obviously, I mean, all true faith is going to involve mysteries that are beyond the capacity of the human mind to discover and to explain. Well, that's why when people start foisting these false religions on us, the first thing we should ask is, well, are there divine mysteries in these religions? They said, no, no, we had to get rid of those mysteries because modern man wouldn't accept it. You say, well, then, obviously, these are man-made religions yeah. because any true religion that comes from God is going to necessarily have mysteries that are beyond the power of human understanding. That's the whole point of having revelation. <laughs> so, uh, um, and you'd, you'd also expect that if there was a religion that was a religion revealed by God, it would always claim to be the one true religion that had come from God. Um, the very things that modern man doesn't like to hear. You know, um, that the, the, the modern world resents the idea that any religion would call itself, and any faith would call itself the one true faith, and that there is one true religion. Um, but of course, there, we know that there must be one true faith and one true religion. If there is one true God, who has sent his one true Son into the world to be our Redeemer and to teach us. Um, so, what they're essentially saying is that we reject the whole idea of there being one true God. And we reject the idea of him sending his one true son, his only begotten son into the world to teach us. We reject that whole idea. Um, but those who accept it, 
hopefully will find their way to the fact and realize, well, if the Son of God did reveal to us faith and uh, establishes one true church and one true religion, then it must still exist and it must still claim to be the one true faith and the one true religion, clearly. And any religion that can't or won't say that isn't worth anything. <laughs> you know, isn't worth the time of day. Why would I bother with it? Um, that it's the only faith and the only religion that is worth anything, or should be. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, the um, the the um, masons who were involved in the arts back then, and there were painters as well as musicians and, and composers and so on. Um, but I mean, there were rakes among the great painters too. I mean. Uh, Titian and uh, and uh, you know so the other the great great painters Caravaggio was not a saint by any means and look at Bernini my goodness his life he was a rake but they produced beautiful works of art should we not look at them should we smash them all um, no because they had the intellectual appreciation for beautiful things and there's nothing in that, contrary to faith. In fact, by listening to the music and by enjoying the art that is truly beautiful, we're actually saying that they were wrong. They were saying that I'm going to glorify the intellectual to the exclusion of faith, although it was faith that paid them. <laughs> Executing religious works is what paid their bills, right? put food on the table, <laughs> fed their families, and so on. Uh, so they found it necessary to execute these beautiful works of art that extol the faith. But in enjoying these things, we're saying the opposite of what they said. We're saying that these things do not exclude faith. Quite the contrary. They're completely in harmony with faith. The human intellect is in perfectly in harmony with faith insofar as the human intellect knows enough to know that it doesn't know everything, and it can it knows enough to know there is a God, but which surpasses it absolutely in perfection. And uh, the human mind is created by God to, to know there is a God with an infinitely powerful mind to know and an infinitely powerful will to love. We know that, and by the power of our intelligence, we're able to know some things about God, some attributes of God. But, of course, there are mysteries that simply go they're beyond our grasp um, that God has to tell us. And that's where the divine mysteries come in. So we, in enjoying the music and enjoying the art of such people, are actually stating, you have, you have the false idea that what is intellectually beautiful is contrary to faith. And that is absolutely not true. Rather, these things can lead us to faith. Mm -hmm. And, and that's how we use them. As far as Mozart is concerned, I could be mistaken. It's been some time since I read this, but I believe that uh, in Mozart's day and in the, um, the country where he was living, um, that one could at least theoretically be both a Mason and a Catholic in good standing still. I believe the church had not yet. Um, well, Pope Clement XI uh, uh, had come down pretty strongly about that. Um, 
So, uh, no, I think they were trying to straddle the lines. Mm -hmm. But it was always a bit of a problem. Yeah. Because the Masons were tried to be a fifth column everywhere they went. They tried to wheedle in. You know, we're familiar with the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita in Italy in the early 1800s, which prescribed a program of infiltrating the church for the sake of seizing the papacy. Right. Uh, something that is very real to us today. But, um, but even back then, I mean, Masons were wheedling their way into the church, trying to get control. They were looking for positions of power. And, um, of course, they were trying to undermine the church back then. But the church was strong enough in its faith that they didn't get very far. But still, yes, there could be those who were members of the, of the lodges. But remember, you know, masonry technically began in 1717 with Ashmole, the, the librarian, spread after that in the 1700s to France, right, where it was to the, the Grand Orient, and then illuminated in the late 1800s, right, by Adam Weishaupt. So masonry was kind of a developing target back then, too. So, yeah, I, I would say that uh, in those days, perhaps uh, it was regarded more as much as a fraternal organization as a false religion. And it was considered to be a career move, perhaps, for the intelligentsia, <laughs> right, to have their own club uh, rather than their own false religion. So we, we have to be careful about reading into what we know now, into the minds of uh, Mozart or others. You know, he wrote Die Fledermaus. Uh, uh, Goethe wrote, you know, about Mephistopheles and uh, the alchemists and so on. And uh, we have to be careful about reading back into, um, into their minds what we know now. It's still... Still wasn't good, though. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong. It still wasn't good. But, you know, you can listen to a, a piece of uh, music composed by Mozart and actually be moved to glorify God because of the beauty that is there. You can thank God that you have the ability, the capacity to appreciate the beauty that is there and uh, the harmony of it all, the... Um, you can uh, look at a, you know, a, a statue by Bernini and appreciate it and actually give thanks to God. Thanks to God that, and, and actually uh, have some kind of a wonderment at, at the, God in his, in his beauty of which all of this is nothing but the faintest reflection. So in terms of their works, um, in spite of themselves perhaps, they were glorifying God in spite of themselves. You would just hope that in the course of their lives, even at the last moment, that would have opened their souls to a divine grace to finally pay homage to the God who gave them such talent to represent such beauty. We hope. Pray. Yes. Well, Father, I think we can end with that. Uh, hopefully we'll have better luck with this week's episode. And well, we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Uh, but we certainly wish all of our viewers well. And if you suddenly we disappear and a week goes by without a program, you might, well, in any case, go to wcbohio.com. Yes. Check there first, yep. please. Yep.
Absolutely. Right, Father, sure. thanks for being here tonight. God bless you. Yeah, certainly. Thank you, Tom. Yep. You too. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.